0: seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The word of the Lord. So tonight we're actually Revelation 15, 16, 17, and 18. We're going to do it in under 30 minutes. Can you say amen? I I looked at this. What in the world were we thinking when we said four chapters of Revelation on one Sunday? And you're probably thinking the same thing. But anyway, uh, I think we're going to be in good shape. How many of you admit that you're a sucker for a good love story? I've yeah, got a few out there that will actually raise their hand. And I know there's some guys out there that would never admit that you were roped into watching The Notebook, and at some point your eyes got kind of misty and there maybe even a tear came down. Don't raise your hand, because this might be videoed. Okay. If you're a historian, you might be drawn to the love story of John and Abigail Adams, great love story. If you're into lit- literature, maybe it's uh, Romeo and Juliet, if you're into cartoons, maybe it's Mickey and Minnie Mouse. By the way, I just saw today that somewhere that uh, Mickey Mouse turns ninety today. So he doesn't look a day over ten, does he? So uh, modern romantics might be uh, maybe got caught up in uh, the love story between Meghan uh, Markle and Prince Harry last summer. And uh, but one of my favorites, actually. Is Carl and Ellie Fredrickson from Up. Yeah. The thing that's significant about this love story is that in like eight or nine minutes, you just know they're deeply in love with each other, and then the rest of the movie goes on. It's amazing how they could do that in such a short amount of time. But uh, anyway. Now, most who read Revelation 15 to 18 will not be thinking love story. They're going to be thinking crime story or Judgment Day. But I suggest what unfolds in this drama is a key chapter in not just any love story, but the greatest love story of time and eternity. It's a love story between the divine and humanity. It's the story between God and his people. There's a metaphor that is continuous throughout all of the Bible, and the metaphor is that God... In the Old Testament, and then Jesus Christ in the New Testament, who is fully God, of course, uh, God the Son, is the groom, and the people of God, or the followers of Christ in the New Testament, are the bride. And so we're going to really use that metaphor quite a bit tonight as we unpack uh, this important uh, section of the love story between the divine and humanity. Now, as we've seen, the book of Revelation and imagination go hand in hand. So, I'd like for you to imagine this there's a bride and a groom with a beautiful beginning. Early on, however, the bride is deceived and then, not too long thereafter, willingly turns her back on the groom. Now, the groom desperately wants to win his bride back, but he takes the long view. It becomes apparent that for him to win her back, he's going to have to make a sacrifice, an ultimate sacrifice. A plan is devised and he goes through with the plan and he does win her back. The loving relationship is restored, but the groom has a good memory. The groom has not forgotten the source of deception that drew her away from him. The groom wants a future that will be free from deception with no chance for a fracture in relationship. To accomplish this, he must eliminate the source of deception, the source of temptation, the enemy of love. Once that has been accomplished, he will never lose his bride again. Tonight, I'd like for us to look at Revelation 15 to 18 through this lens of restored love. And what is happening here is a part of this amazing winning back the bride forever, for eternity. So nothing can come and fracture that relationship again. So I'd like for us to consider four aspects this evening of this restored love. First of all, the strategy of the groom to defeat love's enemy. A little bit of a backstory here. The groom, God himself, created humanity for a loving relationship. Genesis chapter three, verse eight, describes God, the Lord who is walking in the garden looking for Adam and Eve, and he wants to connect with them. He wants to have a meaningful relationship with them. Jeremiah thirty-one, verse three: The Lord says, "I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness." This love that pursues a bride. Revelation four, eleven informs us that it was by God's pleasure that He created all things, including humanity. John three, sixteen, perhaps the most well-known verse in in all of the Bible, informs us that God loves all the people of the world. So in Genesis 3, as the Lord is searching Adam and Eve, they're hiding. They've been deceived. They've chosen to break the only rule that they had been given. As a result, the bride drifts away from the groom, and I'm not speaking of Eve drifting away from Adam. I'm speaking of humanity drifting away from God. There was, however, a people that God chose long ago to demonstrate his affection to. It's the nation of Israel, the Israelites. And early on in that relationship, they were taken captive. They were slaves in Egypt for about 400 years. Moses was chosen to deliver them. And you could say, well, what does this have to do with Revelation 15 through 18? Well, the way that the deliverance happened was a series of plagues. This deliverance, you see, was not immediate. It wasn't just one day, one moment they were delivered. There was the onslaught of of plagues that came against the Egyptian people. This groom inflicted pain upon the captors, deep pain upon the Egyptian community. You can read about it in the book of Exodus And it's parallel with what we see in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 16, we see seven angels that are summoned by God to inflict plagues upon the earth. We have a description here. We have sores on people who willingly worship love's enemy, Satan. There's death to everything in the sea. Drinking reservoirs are turned to blood. There's intense heat that scorches people who worship love's enemy. There's a direct attack on the throne of love's enemy. The primary river for commerce, called the Euphrates, dries up. An earthquake splits the enemy's home base, and 100-pound hailstones fall on those who curse pure love, who curse God. So Revelation, like Exodus, these plagues are for perpetrators of evil. Those who willingly give themselves over to evil, to darkness. And also, Revelation, like Exodus, the plagues are not for the bride. They're not for the people of God. And I want you to take note of that, be comforted by that. These are plagues for those that are willingly giving themselves over to follow and worship evil. The followers of Jesus escape judgment. But this is the strategy of God in these chapters in Revelation is to, one event at a time, is to bring judgment upon evil. You see, Exodus in Revelation, there's some amazing things going on when these plagues are happening. Revelation 15 informs us how the bride is to occupy herself and it's amazing it's what you would not think when all of these things are happening the bride is to worship they're singing the song of Moses they're singing an ancient song and also the song of the lamb so this song goes way back at this point about 4,000 years or so there's singing there's worship that's happening during the judgment the plagues are actually considered great and marvelous, it says. Evil is judged. Evil is eradicated. And as we read together a few moments ago, Revelation 15 verse 4 says, Because you and you only are holy, all nations will come and worship you because they see your judgments are right. And so, really what's happening here is the judgments of God are happening And the people of God are like, strike up the band. This is good news. Once and for all, evil is going to be taken out. This is good after about four millennia of people have been asking how long until justice comes, until all the wrongs will be made right. And we see here at this point in history, now the moment has come. Evil is having its final day. Now, during and after the judgment of evil, the bride worships. I think there's a lesson for the bride today, followers of Christ today. You see, as we watch things unfold in our city, in the world, catastrophes, acts of violence, injustices, we can often ask, how long? How long is this going to continue? And so how do we handle that? How do we handle that in our personal lives when it seems like things are not getting better? Maybe you received news about a job situation or, or you received news about a sickness. There's been a fracture in a friendship and you're, you're asking, how could this happen? Why me? Why us? What are we to do about it? How long will this season that I'm going through carry on? Well, I believe the answer is here. It's kind of hidden in this passage of Scripture. These, not only chapter 15, but 16, 17, 18, and then 19 that we'll look at next week. It's to worship. Worship is the ultimate act of trusting God. When things are crazy, things are going off the rails, that we can center ourselves in worship, in trusting in God. Worship is the essential and central act of the Christ follower. As the writer of Revelation describes various atrocities, the bride stays centered as they worship. You know, to many, worship can seem, first of all, like a passive, irrelevant activity. When there's so much trouble in the world, how could we pull away on a Sunday at 5 o'clock and come worship? It's too passive. We should be more active. Some quit worshiping to join a cause. Some leave the Christ community because they see no point in waiting any longer for change. I was reminded of the song by John Mayer, Waiting on the World to Change. I really liked that song when it came out. It was 2006, 12 years ago. And as I was thinking about that song, I was thinking, has the world changed like much in 12 years? Has it gotten significantly better? We're still in the same war we were actually in. 12 years ago, that's hard to imagine. We see even in Boston this past week and a half, there have been eight murders in our city. There's violence, there's catastrophes, there's things that are happening. How long? How long must we wait? Still, others do not desert the place of worship, they stay, they do something worse, they subvert it through entertainment. Come and be entertained on Sunday. We'll put a little band-aid on it for a few minutes and then go out. But there's nothing significant that happens when we come and if we're just entertained. And there are those who stay but replace worship with lectures and what I would call the cause of the month. As Eugene Peterson writes, John demonstrates the organic continuity between God's actions and our worship. Out of which God shapes his action toward justice. And he continues, nothing that we do has more effect in heaven or on earth than worship. Let me repeat that. Nothing that we do has more effect in heaven or on earth than worship. It's the most active thing we can do. It's the most changing thing that we can do. It it activates the heart of God to move, as we see here in Revelation chapter 15. People are worshiping. They're singing the song of Moses. And finally, judgment for evil is taking place. So as worship rises, judgment upon love's enemy intensifies. It's no wonder that chapter 19 is filled with songs of worship. There's four songs that begin with hallelujah. Songs of the redeemed. Songs that are lifted up. Ushering in a a season of eternity, actually that there would be no evil, but only good. You see, worship isn't the prelude or postlude of judgment. It's the actual sound of judgment. It's the actual music of judgment. Now, going on to uh, the third point here, and we're going to skip ahead here, uh, Paul, on the PowerPoint. The third point here is the ultimate fate of love's enemy. Back in the Garden of Eden, Love's enemy, Satan, thought he won the battle. But little did he know, for Satan is not all-knowing. Satan is not omniscient. Little did he know that God would raise up a people and then deliver them from Egypt. Then the mission of Love expanded to include all people in every nation. Love's enemy thought he won the battle when Jesus died on the cross, but little did he know. Christ's death covered sin and shame for the bride. And then when Jesus rose from the dead three days later, death was defeated. So at this point, love's enemy has a losing streak going. But in his delusion, he thinks he's still winning today. Every catastrophe, every injustice, every act of violence is like a notch on his his belt. It's like a win for him. But the clock is ticking toward his demise, and that is what this section of the book of the Bible represents, the clock that's ticking toward his downfall. Revelation 15 to 18 informs us of a time coming when these final plagues will defeat Satan once and for all. We see the word Armageddon in this passage of Scripture. It's a word that you're probably familiar with. Armageddon represents the kings of the earth who follow love's enemy when they gather together in a place. But the bride will be worshipping as the groom crushes evil rulers at Armageddon, defeats the central city of evil called Babylon. Revelation 18.2 announces that Babylon the great has fallen. But there's words like prostitute and adultery that are used to describe the role of Satan. You see, love's enemy, Satan, is a spiritual whore. And those who succumb to her ways commit spiritual adultery against the groom. So Revelation 18 goes into symbolic detail about the crushing of Babylon. And then we move on to our final point this evening, the unfortunate fate of all who follow love's enemy. Those who are deceived... Those who worship anything or anyone other than the groom. Those who are unrepentant, they face a horrible fate. They will be judged and severely affected by the plagues. These are lovers of money, lovers of immorality, perpetrators of violence and injustice. They will be crushed. Even worshipers of art, Rather than the master artist will, as it says in Revelation 18.22, never be heard from again. As we bring this to the application tonight, the focus for us, there will be a, a judgment, and there's another judgment coming we'll talk about later. This is the judgment specifically upon evil, upon those who follow evil's ways in Armageddon. But judgment is the groom's way of ensuring a beautiful future with Christ's followers, his bride. We as members of the bride need not fear. But stay focused, I believe, on two things. And this is really the application tonight. First, stay centered in worship. Stay centered in worship. Worship, again, is the ultimate act of trust. It's saying that no matter how my life is going, no matter what I see taking place in the city, in the world, I will be a worshiper of the living God. I will. And it's not just about coming here Sundays at 5, but it's having this heart of gratitude, of thanksgiving, that even though things are, are crazy, things are seemingly out of control, and there's much division and unrest, that I am centered in my spirit, I'm centered in my life, in my relationship and trust in Jesus Christ. He will make a dramatic correction as he ushers in justice in the world through judgment. Again, this personal application. When you're feeling that things are not just that have happened in your life, that you are actually the recipient of something that's unjust, that you're going through hard times, the loss of a job, sickness, when you're asking, why me, or you're asking, how long, Lord, how long is this going to take place? I encourage you to worship, to stay focused in engaging in community, in the Christ community, staying connected, being in a place where you can be encouraged, you can be lifted up in your spirit, and to declare your ultimate trust in God as you worship him. I believe it takes a lot of trust to be able to do that. Almost like a blind trust that you're coming and saying, no matter what's going on, I I choose to worship. I choose to praise the God that's going to figure it out. He's going to be by my side. He's going to help me get through this. He's going to ultimately provide for all that I need. And so beyond staying centered in worship, the second thing I want to encourage you tonight is to reach those who do not know Jesus. Jesus. These chapters in Revelation paint a really dark future for those who willingly give themselves over to the worship of love's enemy, to the worship of things that are not the creator God, not the living God. I know from my life I need more of a sense of urgency in those friends that I have, family members that I have, that are not walking close to Jesus Christ. Sometimes we can just go day after day, week after week, month after month, and then years roll by, and we can be in a relationship with someone and never really share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And then one day maybe they get transferred to another part of the country or another place in the world, and we've missed our chance. So one of my hopes for tonight is that there would be a sense of urgency that we must pray and we must share our faith with those that God has entrusted us in a circle of influence in our life. That we would come to terms with that. So that we would see people worshiping anyone or anything other than the living God. And we would take note of that and not judge them, but have a heart to share the hope that is found in Christ. Sometimes we can judge those that do not have faith like us, and we can just put a wall up and say, well, I'm just not going to be with that person any longer. When God has placed them in our life for a reason and that we're to stay in relationship with them and love them. Those who follow love's enemy will be judged by the groom. And we see this very clearly in these chapters. The ultimate reality is that final victory may take a while. Like God has taken the long view for a long time, we must take the long view at times. We do well to do so. But it will come. Evil will be eradicated. Injustice will be, all the injustices will be made right. There will be a day of no more violence, no more tears, no more pain. So let's be devoted worshipers and lead as many people to relationship with Jesus Christ as possible. You're here in Boston for a reason. If you're a student, it's not just to get a great education, but you're here for a reason in this city. For those of you that live and work here, it's for a purpose. It's not by chance that you're here. If there's any city in the world that needs people of God to love those that are yet unreached, those that do not yet know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, it's this city. And we've talked the past couple of weeks about global impact. We've talked about a faith promise and how we can pray for and how we can contribute financially to support ministries here in Boston and Church plants in New England, campus ministries, international ministries, missionaries. And that's well and good. But I would hate to think that, that we would write a check or we would make a, you know, a, a deposit or, I guess, a, a bill pay out of our checking account. You don't write a check anymore, so I need to get the right language here. But you know what I'm saying, that we would send money for global impact but that we would not assume some personal responsibility for the people that God has placed in our lives all around us every day. It's not enough that we just put money in the offering, that we designate money for global impact missions, but that we're actually engaged with a heart for people right here, right now, where we live, where we work, where we play, where we work out. Because there is a day coming that not only will evil be eradicated, but those who worship anything anyone other than the living god will face a day of doom and judgment so what an opportunity we have it's good news that's what we're to share we should be moping around and say oh i've got some news for you i heard like sunday night it's you know it's going to be really bad for you no it's the it's the hope that we share it's the the joyous message of the good news you might be surprised at how many people would actually listen to a word of hope. Uh, because there's a lot of faces I see every, every week in Boston that you don't see hope on their face. You'd ride the T around a little bit, and it's not hope. It's not joy. There's, there's a heaviness. There's a burden that you just see. And I think even now as I'm talking, there's people coming to mind that you know could use a word, could use some good news, the good news of the gospel, that there's one who loves him so much he gave his life for them, not only for hope for this life, but for eternity. And so may we embrace that call. At the same time, may we worship. May we declare our trust in God with thanksgiving that we would, in fact, be worshipers of the living God and that he would fulfill the role of the bride. He is the groom where the bride And it's this marriage covenant forever, and it's good. It's really good. Let's pray together.